Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the Rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio. Changing lives one heart at a time. Beginning at verse 19 to a very, very familiar portion of Scripture. Acts 3, verse 19. And uh, we're going to begin to read here. Peter says in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Yeshua the Messiah, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. Now, I just briefly want to, to make a few comments concerning these passages of Scripture. First of all, I want you to take note that Peter, in Acts 3, verses 19, is not speaking to those who are out in the world, uh, those people who are out in the highways and byways, if you will. No, he is speaking to his own people. He is speaking to people who who have the heritage, the spiritual heritage. They, he is speaking to people who, who know the language, who know the traditions, who have the temple. In short, he's speaking to people who should know and should have known the Messiah when he came and yet would not or could not recognize him. These are the people that he says, repent. Now, in, in Hebrew, I'm sure that a lot of you know this, but in Hebrew, the word repent, in reality, what it's saying is to turn or better yet, even to return. And the implication, of course, is to return to God, to return to him, to return to him his way. Because uh, there's a way that seems right into man, but the end thereof is destruction. And I, I need to point out here that even though we've been born again, nevertheless, because we still walk in this house of flesh, there's a way that seems right to Bill. There's a way that seems right to you. And uh, those ways still lead to death and destruction. So it's very important that as we return to the Father, that we return to him his way as he is defined in the scriptures. And the way and where he defines that, we call Torah. But anyway, uh, the point is, is that he is telling people who should know better that they are in need of repentance and they need to return to the Father, so that their sins may be blotted out. And here's the the result of the repentance, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, that word refreshing could also be rendered revival because it's the recovery of breath it's you you know you you're being resuscitated if you will and so so uh we understand that revival true revival uh, as defined by scripture comes as the result of repentance and then we go on and we see that this revival ultimately leads to restoration and in this particular passage, it talks about the restoration, not of just some things, but it talks about the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. Now, let me ask you a silly question. You don't have to give me a silly answer, but <laughs> uh, the silly question goes like this. What does the word all mean? Exactly. Very simple. It means everything. And so... We're saying here, or the scripture is saying here, that everything is going to be restored. In the end of days, when there comes repentance, when there comes refreshing, revival, if you will, there is going to ultimately come restoration of everything. And when we restore something, what do we do? We put it back in its original condition. So then, here's what we can deduce from this passage of scripture, that everything... <clears throat> In the end, everything is going to be restored or put back in its original condition. So there are some things that we can deduce from this. Number one, we can deduce that you and I will not spend eternity in heaven. The scripture doesn't teach that. Now, every time I say that, I get some strange looks, but stay with me here. If everything is going to be returned or restored to its original condition, consider that in the beginning... The man did not go up to heaven to commune with God, but God came down into the midst of the garden to commune with the man. That's how it was in the beginning. Guess what? That's how it's going to be in the end. The new Jerusalem, heaven, if you will, is coming down here to earth. And so because all things must be restored to their original condition, we understand that, again, we don't spend eternity in heaven. 
Heaven comes down here. And why? Because everything has to be put back in its original condition. Here's something else we can deduce from this. Because in the beginning, there would have been only one language, and we know that's a fact. Uh, in fact, because the Father confused the languages, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, or because of the Tower of Babel. And so because in the beginning there was only one language, that means that in the end, ultimately, there will be one language. In fact, Zephaniah chapter 3, God says that he will return to the people a pure language whereby they may call upon me with one consent. One language in the beginning, one language at the end. All things must be restored to their original condition. Now, that's just a couple of examples, and we could go through a lot more, but just to paint the picture for you that repentance leads to revival, and ultimately this is returning to, or excuse me, this is bringing us to the restoration of all things. And repentance, once again, is returning to the Father His way, uh, abandoning our ways, and I'm, and I'm speaking to, you know, Christians. I'm speaking to believers here. I mean, well, let's put it this way. How many denominations are there? How many thousands of denominations are there? Everybody thinking that this group's got, you know, uh, this group thinks they've got the right uh, outlook on things, and this other group thinks they have the right outlook on things, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have all these different denominations. And, and when it comes down to it, these denominations get started because a group of men or a group of people decided that they didn't like this other group of people and their viewpoint of Scripture. And so they come over here and they're going to make things right. And, well, in the end, with, with all the best intentions that people have, in the end, it all boils down to denominations come down to a man's opinion about what the Scripture says. And so the end-time revival that comes will come because people are repenting and returning to the Father and returning to Him His way as defined by the Scripture, as defined by what His instructions say. That brings revival, which will lead to the restoration of all things, everything being put back the way it was originally. And... and the scripture in verse 21 says that this restoration of all things has been spoken of since the world began. Now, I want you to think about this in just, you know, practical terms. Let's say we have an, uh, an old building that's, you know, 100, 150 years old, what have you. And it served as in, you know, as, as a home perhaps. And then through the years, it became an office building, you know, like we often see. During that process, um, some things have been added to that building, you know, as compared to how it was originally. You know, somebody wanted to come in and they want to make this large room a couple of offices or what have you. Things have been added to that building and some things have been taken away. So if I purchase that building and I want to restore it to its original condition, here's what I understand that more than likely there is going to be some degree of demolition. There's going to be some of the things that have been added to, they are, they're, going to be, they're going to be taken out. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be done away with. There has to be a certain degree of demolition that has to occur in order to put this house back the way it was because, once again, some things have been added to it. Some things have been taken away from it as it was originally. And so... If we look at how things were originally as God purposed, men have added to, men have taken away, and so in order for things to be restored to their original condition, we have to believe that God, as he begins to bring this about, will demolish, if you will, if I can use that word, he will demolish certain things that man has uh, added to, in order to put back the things that man has taken away. Now, does that make sense? And this restoration process that Peter describes in Acts chapter 3 has been spoken of since the world began. In other words, he hints to us that 
Ever since the world began, ever since God began to communicate his word to man through Moses, through all of the prophets, that this restoration of all things has been spoken of. Now, that leads me to this. In Isaiah 46, verse 10, we are told, and I'm just going to paraphrase what it says, is that God can, uh, well, he doesn't have to prove, but God proves that he is the one and only God in, in one fashion by saying that from the beginning he has declared the end. In other words, if you truly want to understand what the end looks like, and, and by the way, how many of you believe we are living in the end of days? Okay, if you believe we are living in the end of days, then you have to understand that you do not understand the end of days by studying the book of Revelation first. That's not how you understand the beginning. If you are going to understand the beginning, you excuse me, if you're going to understand the end, you have to go back and first understand the beginning. In other words, if you're going to really be able to understand the book of Revelation, then you first got to understand the book of Genesis. You've got to understand Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You have to understand what is written in the beginning, what is written by the prophets, in order to understand what goes on at the end. In fact, another example of this is uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 15, and I'm going to paraphrase that as well. Uh, what it says, in essence, is if you want to understand what's going on today, if you want to understand what's going to happen tomorrow, then you first have to understand what happened in the past. In fact, God causes these things that uh, have occurred in the past, if you will, he causes those things to repeat themselves, as it were. And, and so once again, it's just to say that if you truly want to understand what's going on today, if you want to understand what's going to happen tomorrow, then you have to have an understanding of what has already happened. Now, I said all that to get to this point. That was just the introduction, if you will. My point is this. In our subject matter that we want to deal with, and, and what I want to deal with tonight is the last day famine. There is coming a famine in the last days, and to understand how this is going to happen, to understand, more importantly, why it's going to happen, we have to understand that God reveals all of these things to us since the world began. From the beginning. Now, the passage that I, of Scripture that I want to begin with as we, as we begin to examine this is I want to go back to Acts chapter 11. And uh, the reason I want to start here is because I'm, I'm sure that most of you understand by now that the, the focus of what I'm trying to do is to get believers, Christians, to understand the Hebraic roots of their faith, uh, to get them to understand that Torah is for all of God's people. That is not to say that we're to come under the law, because ladies and gentlemen, as far as faith, excuse me, as far as a relationship with, with the Father has been, and as far as that goes, uh, from his viewpoint, it's never been about law that takes you to relationship with him. It's always been about the faith that that's what leads you into relationship with him. The instructions of how to live in that relationship come after the faith. In other words, um, God did not uh, save Israel out of Egyptian bondage because they obeyed his instructions. In fact, they were unable to do anything to bring about their own salvation. They simply trusted in the blood of a lamb. But because they did trust in the blood of the lamb, he saved them then he brought them into the wilderness, he brought them out into Mount Sinai, and then he gave them instructions as to how to live because he had already saved them. And so when we are saved, when we are born again because we have trusted in the blood of the Lamb, there is a way to live. And God's instructions, God's Torah, if you will, defines his way for his people to live. And so that's what we're talking about. And so that's what I'm trying to do and others to try to get God's people to see this. And so this messianic message is going forth into a very secular world. And, and 
because, if, if you will, we are uh, in some degree reliving the days of 2,000 years ago when the earliest believers, you know, were all Jewish, most of them, and they were taking the message of the Jewish Messiah to a very secular world. In the midst of that, in Acts chapter 11, look what happens. And this will kind of set the stage for what we want to talk about. In Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 28, Acts 11, verse 28, here's what it says. Then one of them, that is one of these uh, people who had arisen uh, as prophets in, in the church in Antioch, one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. Now, uh, very quickly, I just want to mention here, just kind of as a sidebar, uh, we probably won't have time to get into this this evening, but just kind of interesting, Agabus is a, uh, a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew name, and the Hebrew name is associated with the one of the words, I should say, in Hebrew for locust. In other words, Agabus, his name means locust, which I find very interesting because he is talking uh, he gets up and shows by the Spirit that there's going to be a great famine throughout all the world. And if you go back and look in the Scripture, the locust is synonymous with famine. And um, that's just kind of interesting. And, and again, we probably don't have time to get into that. But very quickly, um, it's locusts in Exodus 10 who come in and devour all the, of the fields and all that's in the trees, everything that the hail had left in Exodus 10, the locusts come in and devour it, they chew it up, and what you would have had in the land of Egypt after the locusts had finished would be famine. In Judges chapter 7, we have peoples who are invading the land of Israel uh, during the times of harvest, People of the east, the Amalekites, the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, and in Judges chapter 7, they are likened unto locusts. In Joel chapter 1 and 2, you have an army of locusts who are coming in to devour, to chew up, and to destroy. And so my point is, is that the locust is synonymous with famine. So I find it interesting, and by the way, there's a lot more to that, uh, uh, we won't get into that tonight, but there's a lot to, more to the fact that locusts are synonymous with famine and what locusts represent in Scripture, or who, I should say, they represent in Scripture. But anyway, getting back to the point, Agabus, his name means locust, and so he stands up and he says that by the Spirit of God that there is going to be a great famine that's going to affect the entire world. Now, the reason I wanted to start here is this. 2,000 years later, this message of the Messiah and of his instructions are, is going out through the world. And I believe that once again, the Spirit of God is forewarning his people of an approaching famine. But the famine that you and I are, are looking at coming here, or the, the, the famine that the world is um, going to have to face Perhaps in just the next few years, we'll have to wait and see. But nevertheless, when it comes, the Scripture seems to describe a famine that is going to be far more grievous than the one that is spoken of in, in Acts chapter 11. And to see that, we now need to go to the end, if you will, or the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at what that prophecy says. And then we're going to go back and look at some other things from the beginning. So we want to go to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 5 and 6. Of course, this too is very familiar to most of you. If you've read the book of Revelation, and I know you all have, I know you've all been part of those Bible studies that are going to focus on the book of Revelation. And so in Revelation 6, beginning at verse 1, we're not going to read that, but beginning in verse 1, it's, uh, it, it begins to talk about the four horsemen or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And first we have the white horse, which most people believe that that is talking about the coming anti-Messiah. The second horse, the red horse, uh, depicts war. And, you know, this, this horseman is given the authority to take peace from the earth. And then in verse 5, we read the scripture, it says, And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a black horse, 
and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And so it has been um, taught over the years that this third horse, this black horse that comes riding, is a horse that depicts famine. Uh, he has a pair of scales in his hand, and then the, the, there's this voice that says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And so let's, let's talk about why this particular horse depicts famine, and what uh, kind of a famine, or I should say how severe a famine, this is describing for us. Every commentary that I've read says that a denarius, or you know, the uh, the term that is used here as far as you know money, every commentary that I have looked at says that a denarius is approximately a day's wage, and that a quart of wheat would be about what one person could eat in a day's time. And so, what it seems to be saying is that there's coming a day when there's going to be a, a a severe famine whereby food, in this case wheat, will cost a man the equivalent of a day's wage or what he can eat in a day's time will cost him the equivalent of a day's wage. And this passage also seems to suggest that barley will not be as expensive as the wheat. In fact, the wheat's three times more expensive, but it, at any point, it it's a, it apparently <laughs> is a little bit more affordable, but nevertheless, only three quarts of barley for a day's wage. In other words, let's let's break it down this way: if one man could eat a quart of wheat or a quart of barley in a day's time, uh, and he works a day and gets a certain wage, then at best, according to this, he will be able to feed his family. Uh, excuse me, he will be able to feed himself, his spouse and one child by working a full day. In other words, he works a full day, and all he can afford with that day's wage is to feed himself, perhaps his wife, and one child. That doesn't leave any room for uh, utility bills or mortgage payments or car payments or anything like this. He works a day, and at best, he can feed a wife, himself, and one child. But if you're in a situation like me, where you have four children, you know, what, what does that say? So you get the point. There's coming a day when food will be so expensive that a day's wage will afford a man, you know, at best, the ability to feed a very small family, but nothing else. And so that means that food prices are going to be so high in this particular day, whenever it is, that, you know, the people who are going to have first access to the food supplies are the people who have money and or the people who have power. And in either case, that leaves me out. <laughs> but at, at any rate, you see what we're looking at here. And this is coming in the future as described by the book of Revelation. So it is talking and is saying to us, telling us that there is going to be a very severe famine. Now, Many believers, and I have to say this, uh, uh, maybe some of you people here, because we live in the United States, we live in the West, and you know we have a lot of luxuries, we have a lot of surplus, we have a lot of wealth, etc., etc. Many of us in the West don't believe that we're ever going to see these kinds of conditions. However, you know there are people who are believers, who are very devout believers in the world today, who are already living under these conditions. And so, ladies and gentlemen. It is my opinion that you and I may very well, in my, my book, probably will see such conditions. And so for that reason, and this is what I'm leading to here, for that reason, perhaps the Father is providing us with a sign right now that this famine is just around the corner. And what is that sign? Well, let me, let me change gears here. And yet I'm not changing gears. Have you heard about the disappearing bees? Who's, who's heard about that? Or better yet, who has not heard about the disappearing bees? Okay, a few people. Now, <clears throat> what happened was, back earlier in this year, I read an account in USA Today, 
about a uh, Florida beekeeper who was uh, losing the majority of his hives, and uh, the report noted that he wasn't the only one having this problem. And uh, long story short, I got to checking into this, and apparently there is a an ongoing crisis in the industry of you know beekeeping industry where a large amount of hives are disappearing and almost overnight now after i got to you know checking this out because and the reason it prompted my curiosity is because i knew something about uh from a hebraic point of view i knew something about bees and that's why this caught my attention and so i got to looking into this and here's what became obvious uh, it, it started to come out on, uh, you know, television news, Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC, and all these. They were making reports about the disappearing bees. And so the bottom line is this. The article and, and other articles that I looked at noted that many other beekeepers across the nation were experiencing the same kind of situation that this Florida beekeeper was uh, was having. And the reports that I have read uh, basically deduced that uh, there are well, it raises concerns over what might happen if U.S. beekeepers continue to lose uh, their bees. Because I didn't know this because when I was a kid in school, I didn't pay attention in science class. <laughs> but bees are very vital contributors contributors to the world's food supply, and frankly, that they are such an important link in the food chain took me totally by surprise. I, I'd never really considered that. And in fact, let me just give you a few uh, statistics, and not to bore you with the details, but just to kind of underscore the fact that bees are so vitally important to to our existence. There are an estimated 2.4 million bee colonies nationwide, and they are responsible for pollinating everything from um, almonds uh, to over 90 fruits and vegetables. Now, I can't even name 90 fruits and vegetables, but they are responsible for pollinating that many. Uh, in America, bees, uh, through the pollination, you know, by pollinating plants, bees are responsible for up to 30% of the food that you and I eat here in the U.S. In fact, I, I have a quote here from the vice president of the American Beekeeping Federation, and he says, Every third bite we consume in our diet is dependent on a honeybee to pollinate that food. That's very interesting. Every third bite. Think about that. In the U.S. alone, the, the bee industry is valued at more than $14.5 billion. And in addition to food plants, bees also pollinate other flowering plants that are vital to the ecosystem. Uh, and why that's important is because those plants, in turn, affect other species who are vital to the food chain. For instance, because of what cattle are, are being fed, the things that cattle are being fed, by, by and large, are dependent on bee pollination. In other words, if the beef industry is to thrive, then the beekeeping industry must also thrive. And so one affects the other. Now, it's my understanding that in America the bee is is not or the honeybee is not native to North America, but you know we're brought over here by the early settlers, you know, and it began to thrive, and and so because of you know beekeeping, you know, and, and cross pollination, you know that that helped fuel um, American agriculture industry, the agriculture industry. I'll get it out in a minute. You know, and it, it's a contributor, at the very least, to why America is, you know, feeds so many people. However, what's been happening over the last approximately 50 years is that bee populations have been declining. Um, there are two parasites that have been slowly wiping out domestic bee colonies in the United States. And so... Uh, largely due to these parasites, beekeepers expect to lose, on average, about 17% of their colonies every year. And so what they'll do is when, the, you know, they'll go out and buy the queens and they'll restart these colonies. But they expect, according to the statistic, statistic they expect to lose about 17% of their colonies every year. However, 
As of April of 2007, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is reporting that uh, 27 states have been affected by what they're calling colony collapse disorder. Now, um, it is my understanding that reports began to surface, you know, as far back as last summer, that was warning of uh, drastic uh, die-offs or drastic collapses of, of bee colonies. And, in fact, the first official report was made in November of 2006. And so this goes back a ways. And, and the, basically, colony collapse disorder is not referring to the typical uh, uh, die-offs or, or colony collapses that have been, uh, been being experienced over the last five decades. It's very unique. In fact, um, as I already mentioned to you, going back to this article that we were referring to earlier, um, most of these colonies that are that they're experiencing problems, it's not a gradual decline, but it's some of these colonies are vanishing seemingly overnight, you know, in just a few days. And for the experienced observers, they're saying that this seems to be the most serious die-off of honeybee colonies ever recorded and far exceeding the annual 17% that they come to expect that'll, you know, that'll die off. In fact, on the West Coast, it's been estimated that about 60% of the bee population has been lost. On the East Coast, it's been about 70. So the point is that what's going on right now is unique as far as the degree of loss. It, in other words, it's not considered to be the same kind of typical die-off that we've been seeing over the last 50 years. And so it is, apparently it's a very real problem. It's, it's characterized as being drastic and almost overnight, if you will, compared to the gradual declines in the past. Now, they're not finding a bunch of dead carcasses of the, you know, these little bees that where they're dying off in the colony or they're not finding them outside of the colony. They're just seemingly vanishing into thin air. They don't know where they're going. They, they, they haven't found where they've relocated. They just seem to be vanishing. Now, quickly, let me tell you what some of the theories are. One theory is that all these cell towers we're building are contributing to, contributing to this. Another theory has it that the, the magnetic lines in the surface of the earth are being affected by uh, sun flares, and that's uh, disorienting the bees. Some people have even said that a bee rapture has occurred. No, that wasn't a joke. They really, they really say that a bee rapture has occurred. Now, the experts are saying that they suspect, anyway, that it's a combination of different things. The loss of habitat, uh, loss of habitat because these hives are not growing in the wild. You know, there's not a lot of room in them. Uh, they will be placed on tractor trailers and shipped here and there and yonder. So there's a loss of habitat. Pesticides. In fact, pesticides used to combat the parasites that have been killing a lot of the bee colonies. Uh, so pesticide use, the loss of habitat, fertilizers, sewage, all these different things. They believe that all these factors are coming together to, you know, to cause these colonies collapse. As far as what triggered this, no one seems to know. No one's really sure as to why the bees are disappearing or where they're going. No one's really certain why it's happening where the bees are going, but this is one detail that everybody is, most everybody is agreeing on, is that if this uh, disorder continues, if it's not corrected, now let me pause here and say, maybe tomorrow they'll come out with the solution, they've figured out what the problem is, and here's how we're going to fix it, maybe. But if not, if this continues, and if it's not corrected, if they don't have a, a, a solution to it, that it poses a threat, perhaps one of the greatest threats we've seen so far to food supplies, you know, to our health, our quality of life, perhaps more so than ever before. Let me read you a quote that the 
national program leader for the USDA's bee and pollination program said, and I'm quoting, this, referring to colony collapse disorder, is the biggest general threat to our food supply. Here's what the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture said, quote, this crisis threatens to wipe out production of crops dependent on bees for pollination. One uh, biologist from Princeton University has theorized that unless something is done, some fruits and vegetables will disappear completely from the food supply. Now, so far, you know, and, and I'm throwing a lot of information at you, and I promise you I'm going somewhere with this, but the information is to bring us to this point. It's not only happening in the United States, but it's happening in Western Europe, in Great Britain, it's happening in other parts of Western Europe, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, key Latin American countries. And do you know what all those have uh, in common? Collectively, those nations are the biggest contributors to the world's food supply. So what would happen if this phenomenon, if I want to use that word, known as colony collapse disorder, what would happen if it were to continue next year and the year after that and the year after that? If it were to continue, it seems to me that the potential would exist for a global food shortage. That means that diminishing food supplies, if, if the food supply is diminishing, and the human population and consequently the demand for food is increasing, do you know what? The law of economics takes over. Supply and demand. If food supplies are down and demand is up, that means higher prices. That means, again, that those with the money and the power are going to have, they're going to be first in line while the rest of the world is going to have to wait. And so we have a situation that you might have, a situation, let me put it that way, eventually where a day's wage would only buy you your daily bread. Okay, now, <laughs> unless you think I'm all doom and gloom, there is some good news in all this. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 6, it hints at the fact that there are some things that are not going to be affected by bee pollination. If, and, I, and we're assuming that this problem continues, okay? Again, they may find a, a solution for it tomorrow. But if this problem were to continue, you know, there obviously is going to be a, a drastic effect on the world's food supplies. However, there are some things that bees do not pollinate, but, but are self-pollinating or wind-pollinated. And Revelation 6, 6 might hint at this. For instance, grains. A lot of grains are not dependent on bee pollination. Wheat would be one of them. Obviously, barley is another. But... If grains aren't affected and other things are, then obviously the demand for grain is going to increase, and that's going to drive up the price of those items. And so, once again, in Revelation 6, 6, it tells us that a quart of wheat will cost a day's wage. Apparently, wheat is going to be present, but it's going to be very, very expensive. Why? Perhaps because there are so many other things that aren't readily available. But in Revelation 6, 6, and here's what I really want to get to here, because we're about to get into the whole reason for bringing this out. Apparently, there are other things that aren't affected by bee pollination. That would be oil and wine. Now, where does the wine come from? <clears throat> Grapevines. Where does the oil, when the, when the scripture talks about oil, where does the oil come from? Olive trees. And interestingly enough, olive trees and grapevines are not dependent upon bees for pollination. In fact, most vine dressers agree that grapevines are largely self-fertilizing and are cross-pollinated by the wind. Same thing for olive trees. You know, they're very self-fertile, if you will, and increased production is stimulated by the wind. So, if, again, if bee populations continue to diminish and all the foods that they pollinate diminish, the olive harvest, the grape harvest is going to be largely undamaged, as is, as is some grains. However, obviously, they're going to become more valuable. Now, I've said all of that to lead us to this point because I believe that there is coming a literal 
physical famine that's going to sweep across the earth. It's going to devastate the economies of even the most powerful nations. Yes, including ours. In Revelation chapter 6 tells us about that. There are other scriptures that also hint that there is coming a last day famine. And quickly, I want to go through this. The story of Joseph, which you know, you know, we've done a lot of teaching on Joseph, and if, if you haven't heard the teaching on Joseph, we have a, a teaching called the Joseph Factor. It's on DVD, part one, part two. Please get it, you know, because uh, I don't have time to get into the whole story. But it's a very prophetic picture of the end time, and it's also a great example of how the Bible hints that there is coming at the end of days a worldwide famine. But here's what I want to point out to you. It was during a seven-year famine that Joseph's role in God's plan is brought to light. Because it seems doubtful to me, now think about this, seems very doubtful that Joseph's brethren would have, would have traveled to Egypt to get bread had there not been a famine. And if they hadn't traveled to Egypt in search of bread, then more than likely they would have not found their long-lost brother and the two families would not have been reunited. In other words, it seems to me, that God's purposes were accomplished because of a global famine. And what was his purpose for Joseph and his family? That they be restored. That they be restored back to the way it was, if you will. Another example is in Elijah's story. Because these are the days of Elijah, right? We sing about that all the time. But in, in Elijah's story, here's what we see. The scripture clearly teaches that the spirit of Elijah is going to be present in the world before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And you can read about that in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And the great and dreadful day of the Lord, obviously, is the end of days. So I find it very, very interesting that the prophet's ministry occurred primarily during a terrible famine. In other words, the days of Elijah are also days of famine. And yet, it was because of this famine, or perhaps I should say, it was through this famine, and it was through Elijah's obedience during this famine, that God's purposes were once again accomplished. And what were his purposes in the days of Elijah? To bring Israel to repentance, so that there would be revival, and so that there would be restoration. And oh, by the way, here's a little, a little caveat to that. According to the Messiah in Luke chapter 4, that famine that, that occurred during the days of Elijah lasted three years and six months, or three and a half years. Very interesting. Also interesting to point out here that according to the Messiah in Matthew chapter 17, it is Elijah who will come first, because that's what the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 says, Elijah is going to come first, and Elijah is going to come and restore all things. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it possible that the all things that the Messiah refers to in Matthew 17 is a different all things than Peter refers to in Acts chapter 3? Obviously, it can't be. It has to be one and the same. And so, here's what I want to throw out at you. All things are going to be restored to their original condition. That means that some things are going to be have, have to be demolished to remove all the things that were added to in order to put back the things that were taken away. All things are going to be restored at the end of days. And the Messiah tells us that Elijah, or the spirit of Elijah, if you will, is going to be the one who initiates this restoration of all things. In other words, in the end of days, when you see the spirit of Elijah in operation, and what will the spirit of Elijah do? He will call the fathers to return to their children, the hearts of the children, the hearts of the children to return to the fathers. He will come teaching the people to remember the Torah of Moses, because that's found in Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. When you see the spirit of Elijah in operation, you will understand that these are the days of Elijah. These are the days of restoration, of putting things back the way they were. But you will also understand that it happens, it happens during a time of famine. In other words, God will use famine to bring about his end time purposes. In the days of Elijah, the song now, one of the verses goes, 
And though these are day, days of great trials, of famine, darkness, and sword, in other words, God is going to use these types of situations, not just to punish, ladies and gentlemen, but more importantly, to bring restoration. That is why this famine that comes in Revelation 6, in part, that's why this famine comes. Now, all of these examples that I've given you are just to serve as a demonstration that in the, the last days, and I believe we're in those times, that there's going to come a great and worldwide famine. And why? Because it seems to me that God will use privation, he will use famine, he will use all these things that we don't like to think about. He will use these things to get people's attention in order to bring them to repentance, in order that that might be a revival, and ultimately, ultimately that it will lead to the restoration of all things. Because biblical precedent seems to predict that God's purposes for this generation will come to fruition during days of famine. In other words, the lack of physical food will be used to demonstrate that humanity is in need of something far greater. Now, what does that have to do with bees? <laughs> Remember that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that natural things serve to teach us of spiritual things and that the natural things always come first in other words he gives us our daily bread but then he turns right around and tells us what that man does not live by bread alone in fact let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8 Deuteronomy chapter 8 we're gonna look at verse 3 so he humbled you allowed you to hunger Look at that right there. He allowed you to hunger. And by the way, the Hebrew word that is translated there as hunger, the root word is the same word for famine. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, it says that he caused his people to hunger, and he gives them their physical bread, but why does he cause them to hunger and then gives them, gives them physical bread? So that they would understand that he uses bread, the temporal bread, to teach us of our need for the spiritual bread. In other words, famine, if you will, might come to deprive people of physical bread in order to get their attention and draw their attention to the fact that they are in need of the bread that comes from heaven, the spiritual bread. And so... Why would the bees have anything to do with this particular thing? Because if the natural comes first, and if the vanishing bees are an indication of an approaching famine, and famine comes to teach us of our need for the word of God, how are they connected to this? Here's how I think it comes down. How many Deborahs do we have here tonight? Any Deborahs? Okay. Do you know what your name means? That's right. Her name means bee. Devorah, or Deborah, we say, in Hebrew means bee. Now what's fascinating about this is that the root of the word bee, Devorah, is Devar, and Devar literally means word. In other words, the bees are a picture of the word. And so if their disappearance is an indication that soon there's going to be a physical famine. Spiritually, is it saying that soon that people will be unable to find the Word of God? In other words, is a literal physical famine going to teach us that there is a much more important famine going on, and that is a famine for the words of God? Now consider what Amos the prophet wrote, and I know that some of you are already jumping ahead of me, but let's go to Amos chapter 8, and we're going to read a couple of verses here. Amos 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Now, I want you to notice that the prophecy says the famine will be for the hearing of the word, not that the word will disappear. It just seems that most people are not going to be able to find it. 
And I'm going to suggest to you, and some of you might fall out with me on this, but I'm going to suggest to you that in some ways that is already happening. And what I mean by that is this. If you closely observe what is being presented as the Word of God in Christianity, and I mean, I'm you know, talking in general terms here, and you compare it to what the Scriptures actually say, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that what you're going to find is that the true Word of God has been mingled with a man's opinion or with the trends of the day. In other words, you know, if a person gets on television or radio and presents a message in which he reads Scripture and then mixes it with cultural trends or what is popular for the day, has that person really given you the Word of God? My answer would be no as well. And so I believe, this is Bill's opinion, that Christianity at large, what we have done is what we were told not to do. And that is we have added to and we have taken away. And in some cases, so that we might be more attractive to the masses of people and consequently might be more financially productive. And so in my opinion, many people are already finding it hard to, to, to find the true word of God. In other words, there's already, I believe, a famine for the hearing of the words of God. And so is the, is the, Father, uh, is the Father giving us a sign by these bees disappearing, that perhaps there's already a famine for the hearing of the words of God. Now, like I said, they may come out tomorrow and they might find a solution to this problem. We'll have to wait and see. But if even if they do, it doesn't, um, it doesn't undermine the fact that as these bees are disappearing, because in Hebrew they are related to the word I, I still believe that the picture is, is valid and what God is trying to show us is, is what we are witnessing today. And it is leading to a greater famine. Yes, there's coming a physical, literal famine that's going to affect the world. But the greater famine, the famine for the hearing of the words of God, is why the physical famine is going to happen. To teach us that it's not physical bread that we have most need of. It's that bread that comes from heaven. It is the word of God. Now, I should point out here <clears throat> that there are some reports suggesting that colonies that are raised organically, that is, they're growing in the wild, and the beekeepers don't use pesticides and other chemicals, etc., they are not experiencing this colony collapse disorder. In other words, <clears throat> because the bee has a delicate immune system, it's highly sensitive to disease, and it's highly sensitive to the chemicals designed to ward off those diseases. Things have been added to them. Things have been taken away, their natural habitat. Those are the ones having the problems. The ones that have not been added to or things have not been taken away, those don't seem to be having the same problems. And what we see in that is, ladies and gentlemen, when we present the true and pure word of God, it will do what it's designed to do. And it will not return into him void. The word of God is not going to disappear. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that the word that has been mingled and mixed with the traditions of men is not going to have the effect that God has purposed by his word. It's going to come eventually. It's going to come to nothing. And it's and if all the peoples of the world, or the most of the peoples of the world, have depended on that mixed word for their food, if you will, they're going to come up missing. They're going to come up short, and there will be a famine for the hearing of the words of God. Now, there's one other thing I want to bring out to you here, and, uh, and that is something that it was kind of relegated to the back page, if you will, but now it's starting to come back more toward the front page because of these diminishing bees, and that is this, the so-called Africanized bee or killer bee. And I won't go into all the, the story of how the killer bees came about or the Africanized bees came about, but basically it boils down to this. The desire 50 years ago approximately was to take the aggressive nature and you know, production skills because of that aggressive nature of an Africanized bee and mingle it with the docile nature of a European bee in order to get more production out of a honeybee and yet not have to deal with the aggressive nature of the Africanized bee. 
The bottom line is that experiment failed. And for the last 50 years, these Africanized bees have been migrating from South America through Central America up into the United States now. These bees, these Africanized bees, were the, well, the, Europe, the European domestic bee that we have here in the United States is, you know, relatively docile. Doesn't move much, you know, if they build another hive, it's usually pretty close to the original hive. So they don't migrate long distances. The Africanized bee, on the other hand, highly aggressive, easily agitated. It swarms a lot. They, they're migratory. You might even say they're nomadic. And what helps and aids in their migration is they'll come across weakened hives, weakened domestic hives. They will invade their hive, kill the queen, and in, uh, to put it in plain language, mingle with the other bees and tell them to submit, become one of us, or die. And the migration of these Africanized bees is becoming big news now because with this colony collapse disorder, many, many more hives are weakened, and that helps these Africanized bees move in and spread faster. Now, once again, I'm thinking, some of you are thinking the same thing. I can see it in your face. I'm thinking that because the Word of God has been mingled with the traditions of men and, and that has rendered us weak, there is this other more aggressive and easily agitated bee that is moving in to these weakened hives, if you will, and is spreading. And what do you think that's a picture of? My bottom, the bottom line is, ladies and gentlemen, and oh, by the way, those people that, that it p seems to paint a picture of, Islam, you know, very aggressive, highly agitated, moves into weakened colonies, if you will. Islam, the, the radical form of Islam that is spreading through the world now, that is threatening the world. Guess what? Where Islam originated from, the deserts of Arabia. The people of the East in Judges chapter 7, the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, those are the fathers of the Arab peoples, the people who gave us Islam. Along with the Amalekites in Judges chapter 7, they are likened as to locusts. And what do locusts do? Locusts are synonymous with famine. All this, ladies and gentlemen, is, is leading me to this conclusion. That yes, we are facing a worldwide famine and very soon, in my opinion. The disappearing bees, in my opinion, point to that. But most, most importantly, they are pointing to the fact that there is a greater famine coming and that is the, for the hearing of the words of God. But I want to, to kind of, uh, as we begin to end this, I want to, to leave it on this note. There has always been a remnant. There have always been those who have not become entangled with the system that is only interested in increasing production, if you will. They're still continuing to build communities and to, and to pollinate just as the Creator intended. And though they are fewer in number, they nevertheless will thrive in the wild. In other words, <clears throat> the Word of God is not going to disappear. Con consider John the Baptist. He is a man who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And what did he eat? He ate locusts for lunch <laughs> and he ate wild honey. Apparently, he knew where the bees were. He knew where they had gone. Now, on that note, I should also point out that Elijah never went hungry either. In, in the course of the entire famine, and Elijah went into hiding. He disappeared. They couldn't find him. But he went into hiding, and he was by the uh, the brook Kerit, and he was fed during the during the entire famine. He never had to go searching for bread. In fact, Psalm thirty seven says, "I have been young, and now am old; yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread." Joseph knew just where to go in order to find bread. He never had to wonder where bread was going to come from. In the days of famine, he always knew where to find bread. All right, so that leads me to this point. The book of uh, Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, tells us there's going to be a very severe famine. Some things will not be affected by it. Wheat, parable of the wheat and the tares, the wheat describes the sons of the kingdom. Olives are not going to be affected. 
Grapes are not going to be affected. They're just going to become more valuable. So how important will it be in the end of days to be part of the true vine that the Messiah talks about in, the, in John's gospel? How important will it be to be part of that good olive tree that Paul speaks of in Romans 11? And what is that good olive tree, by the way? It is Israel. Because while all these other plants and fruits are failing, those that are not affected, those that are not pollinated by bees are going to be extremely vital. They're going to be extremely valuable. And here's one last thing we need to point out. We already mentioned it, but let's mention it again. These are things that are not dependent on pollination by bees. These things are self-fertilizing and are cross-pollinated by the wind. And in Hebrew, the word for wind is ruach, which is also the word for spirit. You see, because God told us that it's not going to be by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's a bad world out there. So take solace in the word on Solace Radio.